Our reading today is from Acts 4, verses 1 to 31. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could not see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them again and commanded them not to, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges." As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided before should, beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So here we are in Acts 4. Please have your Bibles open uh, to it so that we can uh, look at the, the text together. Um, 
Just as a bit of advance warning, I'm not going to look at verses 23 to 31 this morning, even though that was something I had planned to do. Um, we'll have a look at those, particularly in our monthly prayer meeting, which is uh, a week on Wednesday, uh, the, the 7th of March. So um, we, we'll touch on the, one or two points from the, that, that section, but I'm going to spend most of the time looking at verses 1 to 24. And as we do that, uh, 1 to 22, and as we do that, I just... One of the things that stands out here in Acts is the courage of the disciples. We're going to see that more um, as we go through these next few chapters, chapters 4 right through to chapter 8. And I wonder what picture of courage you have when you hear that word. When I was thinking about it, um, there were some things that uh, came to mind. Just some images there. One from China, Tiananmen Square in 1989. I was a teenager when this was happening, pro-democracy protests. And here's a chap, uh, an anonymous chap called Tank Man, who you can see there standing in front of this column of tanks as, as the Chinese army were coming in to disperse the protesters. And, and there were some really violent scenes there or is it Rosa Parks the the woman who boldly said no to giving up her seat after a hard day's work having paid for it and just being ordered to move to make room for someone else a white person uh, is it the firefighters of the World Trade Center on at 9-11 and particularly that image of uh, of the the firefighters going up the stairs as people were coming out of it the these images that we, we see and hold in our minds acts of courage there. Um, the woman in the uh, bottom uh, left corner, uh, Dr. Zakira Hakmet, is one of 11 women who were honored at the International Women of Courage Awards in the White House last year. She was born in Afghanistan. She completed her high school education secretly um, under the Taliban's first period of control, she went on to become a medical doctor in Turkey and uh, from a one-room office founded the Afghan Refugee Solidarity Association in Turkey. And she's worked tirelessly to advocate, advocate for refugees and women all over the world. You see, these are acts of courage, aren't they? They're ways in which standing up and making a stand, using one's voice, using one's... Um, agency, action, to make a difference. And we know that there are many hidden acts of courage, even thinking about um, coming to church today. For some, where, where social anxiety is such that coming in a large group can be so off-putting. It takes courage uh, to do that. As I witnessed this week at a, a funeral of a, a, a friend of our family, um, a friend from Holy Trinity Platt, seeing his 20 year, uh, the father died and seeing his 22-year-old son giving the eulogy uh, and speaking clearly not only of his father's life and love but of his faith in Christ Jesus takes courage. And throughout the Bible, we see this exhortation. Joshua was commanded by the Lord several times to be strong and courageous as he took over leadership from Moses. Paul reminding Timothy that the Holy Spirit does not make us timid but gives us power. 
Paul having to remind him of that to be courageous. And here in Acts, Peter and John are called to be bold and courageous for the gospel in front of Jerusalem's highest religious and political council, the Sanhedrin. We heard that name being used in verse 15, the Sanhedrin. We'll come on to their their constitution, who made up that council. But if chapters 1 to 3 of Acts, as we've been seeing in our series, has shown us the power and resources Jesus has given his church... There was the 40-day training program he had done with his apostles. There was the commissioning of the apostles. There was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2 on all believers, followed by this dramatic conversion of over 3,000 people and more being added to the new community each day, as we saw at the end of chapter 2. And now the tide starts to turn between chapters 4 to 7. There's persecution, there's opposition, there's hostility. It comes from both outside the community and then there's division from within the community. And there are significant lessons here for us as Christ Church to learn, to be awake. So as we continue on his mission, from the, the events that Luke has recorded here, he's, they've been preserved so that we might learn and apply. And the first thing, quite simply, as we go uh, through these verses, the first headline I want us to uh, look at more deeply is that Jesus' church must expect both spiritual hunger and hostility. Spiritual hunger and hostility as we follow him on his mission. So here we are in verse 1 of chapter 4. And following the extraordinary healing of the paralyzed man that Jez took us through in his sermon last week in chapter 3, who for the first time is running and leaping for joy into the temple, this 40-plus-year-old man who had never walked before. He's filled with joy. The crowds are amazed, but not everyone is happy, are they? Verse 1, the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees were greatly disturbed. Why were they greatly disturbed? Have a look at verse 2. Because Peter and John were teaching and proclaiming in Jesus... The resurrection of the dead. And Luke has already recorded the extended highlights of Peter's sermon in chapter 3, verses 11 to 26. It's a courageous declaration of Jesus' power. Not the apostles' power, Jesus' power. He's explaining that the miracle has happened because of Jesus Christ. And that in that sermon there is both hope and judgment. Look at the hope. Just go back to chapter 3, verse 19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has, who has appointed for you even Jesus. You see, this is, this is good news for all God's people, for all people who turn to him. You see, Christianity isn't a daily dull drudgery. It is about forgiveness, and more importantly, about refreshment. God gives refreshing to our hearts and souls. So it means that we're not defeated, even when life feels like we're walking up the side of a treacherous mountain with the wind and rain blowing in our faces. No. We have hope. We have restoration to come because Jesus is risen. He is at work And that was proved by this healing that had happened in Acts 3. The broken world we know will be fixed. God will restore all as he has promised in verse 21. 
we will enjoy living in God's presence. But there is a warning as well. In that sermon, there's the hope and there's warning. Look at chapter 3, verse 23. Anyone who does not listen to him, that him refers to Jesus, the promised prophet, will be completely cut off from their people. You see, there's refreshment and there's separation. There's God's forgiveness, but there's God's wrath. His holy, righteous anger at a world gone astray in rebellion against him. We might want to ignore that choice, but we will come face to face with it when we meet the risen King of Kings in the final judgment. That is Peter's message. That is the Christian church's message, both hope and warning. Now, this is a powerful message, and it annoys this people group, the Sadducees. They're a key group in the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. Theologically, the Sadducees were more liberal. They, they didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death, and they weren't looking for a Messiah. Quite interesting, all these quite key things as you read through the Old Testament, they had in different ways rationalized them, either as a metaphor or as something that had already arrived. They had accepted that the Maccabean revolt, which was something that had happened centuries earlier, 167, 160 AD, around that period of time, when the sons of the high priest at that time rebelled against the Seleucid Greek Empire. They chucked them out of the temple and they took hold and control of Judea. It was a high point at that time, politically speaking, for the Jewish people. The Sadducees saw that as the key event with the kingdom of God now as an earthly, political, humanistic reality that needed to be preserved. And they were part of this ruling upper class. So doing life well, doing well in this life, was their priority. If they had t-shirts, don't rock the boat would be the slogan on the t-shirts, yeah? They worked with the Romans. They took high positions in this colonial government so that they could maintain, so that they could influence and control life. Splinter groups, certainly splinter groups that had a religious bent on them, were a right pain in the neck for them. It was disruptive. It was chaotic. But within the Sanhedrin, you also had the Pharisees. And now Pharisees were people like Nicodemus, who we read about in John's Gospel, John chapter 3. He visited Jesus secretly at night to ask him about the kingdom of God, to find out more. And also, he helped Joseph of Arimathea, who was also another member of this council, bury Jesus' body. They did the bold thing of asking for the body from Pilate and putting it in a tomb. Now, the Pharisees were a tribe that were very different from the Sadducees. They were more conservative, theologically speaking. They were teachers of the law who wanted to preserve the biblical law and apply it to every area of life. They believed in the literal resurrection and the return of the Messiah. And they weren't part, interestingly, of the elite upper class. Now, just from that, you might be thinking, well, so what? This is real life, isn't it? People from different backgrounds, people with different agendas, people uh, wanting to maintain sort of how life is going at the moment, others looking for more reformation and change. And all of that within a religious faith context, 
of working out what does it mean to live before God. And so faithful gospel preaching is bound to get a reaction from all these different groups, all these different people. It has always been the way. And when those in charge don't like something, they can just shut it down. They can silence it. It is an effective weapon. Verse 3, what do they do? They seize Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. So this miracles happened, the preachings happened, there are people responding to it positively, take the two guys, stick them in jail. Let them sweat it out there. Leave them in the dark, cramped jail cell. Maybe that will give them time to cool down and re, uh, you know, rethink their position. Make them see sense. But look at the reaction of the people, verse 4. But many who heard the message believed, so that the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So there's an accumulation. People are believing in the name of Jesus. Picture Peter and John in their jail cell, in the prison cell. Maybe they're worried. I know I would be about, oh man, we've just, we're here. We've made a total mess. What are the other 10 apostles going to be thinking of us? We've totally ruined this. This isn't how it should have gone. And they are completely unaware of this amazing harvest that's taking place. You see, God works powerfully through courageous preaching about Jesus. God works powerfully when people stand up and share his word. Now, let's be honest. There is an uncomfortable lesson right here and now for us as people who call ourselves followers of Jesus. And it is this, that persecution for the gospel and growth in the gospel go together. Persecution for the gospel and growth of the gospel go together. Again, listen to part of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Grace very helpfully read um, the, a chunk of it out to us and reflecting on that poverty of spirit. When we hit verse 10 of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something fascinating there about persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. That's from Matthew chapter 5 verses 10 to 12. He is describing all Christians there, not just a special few. All Christians who live a God-centered life. Again, the Apostle Paul, a a former persecutor of Christians, we'll get onto that in part two of Acts as we look at that uh, later this year. A persecutor of Christians who then endured an absolute ton of persecution as he became a Christian and spread the gospel. Paul tells his his right-hand man, the the guy he was training up for ministry, Timothy, he says this in his, his second letter to Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone who wants to go Jesus' way, live that faithfully, will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. If we are part of Christ's church, we must understand this. 
We must expect it. We must prepare ourselves for that mixed reality of suffering and fruitfulness as we follow Jesus, as we share his good news. It means our churches, where we are faithful to Christ and proclaim his good news, will be both attractive to some and despised by others. That's a hard thing to say, isn't it? It's a hard thing to hear. But it's here in Scripture. It's given to us to be prepared for it and not resent that reality. So honestly, how, how does that make you feel? I know I don't want to face that. Yes, we can, we can be grateful we don't face that level of, of, of threat and suffering that many Christians right now across the world in different parts of the world today are facing. But there is a danger here for us in Manchester, in the UK, that our security, our comfort breeds complacency about speaking the gospel. In my preparation, I've been reading some, some Bible study notes that uh, the Reverend Dr. Tim Keller prepared for his church in New York, Redeemer Church, several years ago. And I came across this bit. I read it out to the staff team because it, it really just shot me right between the eyes, metaphorically speaking. Keller writes, If we Christians are experiencing attacks without accompanying fruitfulness and attractiveness, so lots of persecution and no affirmation, we're probably being persecuted for being harsh and insensitive, for lacking respect and warmth towards people. You see, insensitive and harsh Christians have persecution but not praise. He continues, cowardly Christians have praise but not persecution. Most Christians who walk with the Lord is weak actually get neither. But Christians who are closest to Jesus will get both as he did. So if we are not suffering any attacks, it means we are simply being cowards. We are not taking risks in our witness and not being bold. Now that, that hit me heavy. Because we want to be liked. We want to keep the status quo, the peace, our comfort. I needed to hear that challenge. I'm sure there are some of us in, in this church that need to hear that challenge. I'm sure the church in the United Kingdom needs to hear that challenge and consider our response. Where am I? Where are you taking those loving risks to speak to people about Jesus, to be distinctive, not to wind them up, not to be antagonistic, but in love go with his good news. We, we love Jesus, but we have friends and family who don't get him, who aren't interested. Perhaps we've tried to share a bit of the good news and it's just too jarring, it's too frustrating. We, we felt useless. We can't answer the good questions they have and the doubts they have. We can't own the mistakes we've done which might be putting them off Christianity. Well, the Lord knows this. He sees that. He is gracious. He faced rejection himself, and he is with us as we testify to him. We're not doing it in our own strength. His spirit is at work through us, and ultimately, he's the one who opens hearts to receive his good news, to believe in him.
And just as we heard from Amy the, earlier this morning about the CU Events Week, we certainly need, don't we, to stand alongside our students prayerfully, practically. Don't, don't just hear that interview for seven minutes here and there. Oh, that's nice. And, and by, you know, Monday morning, Tuesday morning, it's, oh, totally forgot about that. This is vital to be prayerfully, practically supporting them this week as they stand up and be counted, as they lovingly share Jesus Christ's good news with numerous students who don't know him and, according to Jesus' diagnosis, are heading to an eternity of judgment, hell. Positively, therefore, we also need to see the hunger. There are many countless hungry people who want Jesus' good news. As we share his good news, hearts will repent. There will be refreshment. That's what the Lord has promised. So we can also pray for the Holy Spirit to enable us to speak the word boldly, just like the Christians did at the end of Acts 4. That was their prayer meeting for boldness, to rekindle that power, that zeal, to be about people who are unashamed of sharing his good news. So if that's... The first point, that we need to be people who realize there's both going to be spiritual hunger and spiritual hostility, and to expect that. The second is this, that Jesus' church must cross the pain line. And this pain line centers on the very person we want to share, Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, in any sport, there's a pain barrier. There's a pain line that you have to cross. Runners World apparently say if you're going to train for a marathon and run it, the pain line in the marathon will be around 18 to 20 miles in. You're just going to hit it. Your body's going to feel empty, and you'll just want to just sit down and cry at that point. Bear Grylls, reflecting on his SAS selection test, describes it like this. If I could have had any idea of the pain and battering that my body would go through on selection, I would have realized it was insane to continue with this mad dream. You know, don't even bother trying because of what's going to come. Quite simply, pain deters us from doing stuff, doesn't it? it? It is a wonderful safety mechanism in that sense. But emotional pain can deter us from doing something very good. And when it comes to faithfulness to Christ, there is an inevitable pain line we have to cross too. Will we put our love for him first or seek people's approval? Will the pain of being rejected by other people control us? And when it comes to the Apostle Peter, he's got a previous track record to deal with on this issue. Remember the night that Jesus was arrested? Okay, where was Peter? The night he was arrested, Peter was in the courtyard and he was being questioned by a persistent servant girl. Hardly a high court cross-examination, is it? Listen to Peter's reaction and the final words, his final words, as recorded by his scribe Mark. So this is Peter telling Mark what went on that evening. These are his words recorded for us. He, Peter, began to call down curses and he swore to them, the people gathered, listening in on this conversation, he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. You can read that in Mark chapter 14, verse 71. 
And when he realized his triple denial, because that was the third time he did it, he just broke down and wept. He's a broken man. And now in Acts 4, Peter and John are standing face to face with the Sanhedrin council, the very men who had rigged Jesus' trial and falsely accused him and sent him to crucifixion. So will Peter crumble in fear? Is he going to repeat the same thing again? Can you feel the pressure he would have been under? And yet, what do we see? Power. We see a transformation here. We see someone depending on God's Holy Spirit. Filled with the Spirit, Jesus gives him the words as he promised he would back in Luke 12 when he was training his disciples. He said, you'll go up against councils and other people and I will give you the words. The Holy Spirit will equip you. And what does he say? Look at these powerful words, his defense from verse 8. If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Verse 11, Jesus is, and here he quotes from Psalm 118, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That is the defense. He not only answers their question about the source of, their, of his power and authority, but he goes on to, one, identify who Jesus really is. He says in that and, and brings a condemnation on the council for rejecting the Messiah. That is who Jesus is, the one who's brought the power. And at the moment, you are rejecting him. You're on the wrong side. And then thirdly, he preaches the gospel. Peter asserts this act of kindness meant that the healed man standing right next to them earlier, right in front of them, is irrefutable proof that Jesus is alive. And that Peter has done nothing wrong here with John. And it's interesting that the council are not denying the miracle. They can see it. It's clear. The healed man, therefore, is a snapshot of that refreshing. He is a snapshot, a picture of the restoration of God's kingdom, the blessing. It's like a photograph in a cookbook where you see how everything's supposed to turn out. It looks wonderful. Or, or the holiday brochure or, or on the internet, you know, the, the photos of where you go, that destination, the beach is perfect, the sun's out, it looks wonderful. But this man isn't an airbrushed image. It's not a clever marketing tool. He is a real, transformed, saved, that's the word in Greek for healed, saved. It's bigger than just what's happened to his legs. A saved man. And these skeptical leaders cannot deny that. And you see, Peter goes further. He applies God's word to them. Psalm 118, he brings conviction here through God's word. And it's a great psalm to use because it's one that pictures a king who is rejected, who is outside the city, rejected by the people, facing enemies, but is vindicated by God and returns to the city in victory and is received as the king of kings. 
And so it is obvious. You, the council of Israel, have rejected the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the very brick stone chosen by the master craftsman, stonemason. This was the stone that would hold a whole building up. It was that critical. But Israel's leaders, those who are responsible for building up God's people, they've rejected this stone that holds everything together. They've they've turned away from the very thing they should have been giving themselves to. Reject the king cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and you will be ruined. Nothing stands. It collapses. For Jesus alone died for the sins we have committed. Jesus alone rose in resurrection. Jesus alone is exalted and ruling now. Jesus alone will return. You see, he ushers in the new creation age, the restoration that God has promised. And whether we like it or not, Council of Israel, people here in Manchester, people worldwide, Every government that stands at the moment, we will meet him face to face. And Peter's bold assertion here, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. Salvation, no one else, no other name, Jesus alone. Now, I don't know if John and Peter were prayerfully planning what they would say all night in the prison. I think I would be doing some homework. How are we going to get out of this? What do I need to say? But for an ordinary unschooled man, and unschooled means that they're not technically trained by one of the authorized rabbis for several years. That's what they mean. They were literate. They could read and write but they hadn't gone through the authorized education system to be doing this stuff. Peter's argument is inspired. He's shown the ruling council. You can't deny the power we have and the authority this guy uh, has shown you because he's healed. There's real power. There's real authority here. Uh, The power comes from Jesus, who you know did this sort of stuff all the time. They were wound up in Mark 2 when Jesus forgave the sins of a paralyzed man, then went on to heal him to prove... He had the authority to forgive sin, which is a God thing. And if he is healing today, then it shows he is alive. You tried to silence him by killing, and look what happens. He is alive. His work is going on now. And he offers not just physical healing, but spiritual salvation. How does an unschooled man answer like this? Well, through God's spirit at work in him. How do everyday Christians like you and me share the gospel and answer people? The same way, through God's spirit, obedient to his word, dependent on him, poor in spirit, Lord, use me. And as Christians, we can't avoid crossing this pain line, not just of our feelings, our fear of rejection, but this most important pain line of the uniqueness of Christ and exclusivity of salvation in him alone. We cannot compromise on this. We live in a time when those who would hold to the uniqueness of Jesus, the exclusivity of being saved for God, forgiven through him, well, if we hold that, we're just viewed as ignorant and arrogant and intolerant. Ignorant of others, intolerant of others, and arrogant of our own position. 
The pluralist mindset holds that no religion can make that absolute claim. Secularists can be very critical of Christians sharing our faith with the goal of conversion, seeing someone change their mind and indeed their whole life around this truth that we can know God personally through Christ. A secularist would consider that just wrong and unethical. And yet they are willing to recognize plenty of other groups and other organizations are constantly trying to win people around to their way of thinking and usually doing that in order to get people as well signed up to support and spend money and do other things with their time and stuff. So actually there is a work of persuasion and change that's going on that is acceptable but just not in this realm. And the pluralist is also making an absolute claim about the uniqueness of their position. Their one rules everything. So they fall into the same trap they're trying to say to religious people. It just at this point sounds a bit more acceptable. But Jesus himself didn't leave us that option. You see, his direct statements like this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me in John 14. His actions, as I said, forgiving sins, feeding 5,000, calming a storm, bringing a dead man, a dead girl, back to life, guaranteeing a place in heaven for a criminal being executed next to him are all things only God can do. God has the right to do. And so by his words and deeds, Jesus shows he had that right because he is God in flesh. It is utterly essential for Christians to hold to this exclusivity of salvation in Jesus because that is what he taught, that is what he died for, that is what he rose for, and that is how he reigns today. Now, on Friday morning, I was at Man City Football Club as part of my chaplaincy role. And it was an, uh, it's the first time I've had a meeting like this. It was with an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, a Syrian Muslim doctor, a Muslim, the Muslim chaplain at City as well, and some Jewish fans who are also connected with the football club. And the rabbi and doctor were there to give a presentation to the youth players about handling religious differences, uh, particularly in light of what's going on in the Middle East at the moment. Anyway, it got double booked, so it didn't go ahead. We're going to do it again. But the interesting thing was we all had coffee together in the HQ, sitting around and chatting about these vital issues. And it was so refreshing to hear an upfront, very warm and respectful conversation taking place about our fundamental differences, articulated clearly by the rabbi when he said, who went up Mount Moriah with Abraham? The Muslim will answer Ishmael. The, the Jew and the Christian will answer Isaac. And he went, there can only be one. <laughs> How do we relate to each other with these fundamental differences? To claim that Judaism, Islam, and Christianity have similarities and shared heritage is obvious, isn't it? It's obvious. But to claim that ultimately they are all compatible, teaching the same truth, is actually to do violence to all three. And it is an obvious lie. Now, exclusivity doesn't mean arrogance. 
Our posture in evangelism is one of respectfulness. It's one of servant-heartedness. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. That was the example he gave. And that servant-heartedness is one of the most powerful answers to the charge of arrogance and ignorance. Peter and John were not being arrogant. They just saw a real need. They had done an act of kindness for free. It is the example that Jesus gave in washing the disciples' feet, in the way he faced those who hated him. Again, Ajith uh, Fernando, a Sri Lankan theologian, the director of Youth for Christ in Sri Lanka, in, in one of his works on this, on the uniqueness of Christ, he highlights how the gospel spread a few decades ago in Nepal, uh, a Hindu kingdom where there are strict anti-conversion laws. One Nepalese newspaper had done a report about the way AIDS patients were being treated. Um, essentially, AIDS patients would go to hospitals and then they would be thrown out as, uh, as soon as they were found out to be suffering with AIDS. Except one hospital, which was run by Christian missionaries. Now, the Christian social and health workers have a very good record of compassionate service, but by law, they are not allowed to evangelize, and they respect that law. However, it's not surprising that the Nepalese Christians working alongside the missionaries began evangelizing their fellow people, and large numbers of people were coming to Christ. The census in 2021 showed a rapid growth in the number of Christians in Nepal, which rose by nearly 40%. It shows that there are about 7,758 churches now in this overwhelmingly Hindu country. That courage, that sharing of good news, that place of servant-heartedness, respect, is something the Lord blesses, as he wants to see people enjoy the refreshment he gives. So Jesus presents himself not as just one possible path to God, but as God himself. We can choose to ignore, we can choose to mock or disbelieve him, but he cannot be one truth among many. He hasn't given us that option. And the commands of verse 18 and the threats of verse 21 from the Sanhedrin do not frighten Peter and John. It's a no-brainer. We can only say what we've seen. We can only speak the truth. Verse 20, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now, when was the last time you were told to be quiet or to shut up politely? What was it you were going on about, talking about? Football, films, food, music, clothes, other people, Jesus. You mentioned Jesus, the conversation starts drying up quite quickly, doesn't it? And yet he is the most important person anyone can meet. And isn't it fascinating? As I said, we'll look at this, this section on the prayer meeting, at our prayer meeting on Wednesday the 6th of March. But as we close, just one thought there. Isn't it amazing that these Christians come back together after this first sign of persecution? And what are they praying? They're taking God's word, Psalm 2, they're praying that in. They're rubbing it into their hearts and minds. This is the reality, Lord. Who's in charge? You are. Okay. And with that in mind, consider, verse 29, the threats. And protect us from harm. Keep our families safe. Get rid of the opponents. Come back now. Why not take us to heaven? No, those things weren't what they prayed. 
No, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. First, they ask for the courage and power to keep doing the very thing they're told not to, keep speaking the gospel message. And then they pray that God would do his transforming power, miracles, healings, signs and wonders. They're asking not for miracles of vengeance or protection, but miracles of mercy. People healed, people converted. So we're to expect the hunger and the hostility. We've got to cross the pain line. We're unashamed that there is no other name by which we must save. We don't stop speaking about Jesus because his good news is what we all deeply need. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord God, that you are the the Lord over us who has given us great refreshing in Jesus Christ, a great hope, as well as a, a severe warning not to ignore you speaking to us, not to ignore this good news. Father, for all who follow Christ, who know you as Lord and Saviour, give us this boldness, this courage, this compassion to speak your word, to depend on your Holy Spirit to do that work. For those friends and family who still have the questions, still seem far from you, Lord, would you meet with them? Thank you that there are people even here this morning with those questions. Lord, please answer. Please speak into their lives. Please use men and women who can share something of your good news with them as well so that they might know your unfailing, everlasting love and life. In Jesus' name, amen.